0: In Session with Dr. Fadid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook. To get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The studio number is 3104410555. Let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is All About Love by Bell Hooks. All About Love by Bell Hooks. I've heard a lot of good things about this book. So looking forward to reading it and discussing it on next week's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is The Antidote by Oliver Berkman, The Antidote Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And Oliver Berkman also is the author of 4,000 Weeks, which I read, I don't know how many weeks ago, maybe two years ago. Uh, And I really enjoyed that book and so the the title and the subtitle and the author all drew me to this book I often do joke that I judge a book by its cover uh, Because I haven't obviously read the books when I choose them and this one definitely was appealing to me Uh, Oliver Berkman's book 4,000 weeks. I really enjoyed he wrote this book first and there's a whole chapter on death which I'll talk about and I wonder if that partially um, inspired him to write a whole book related to our mortality or becoming aware of it Uh, and the title the antidote happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking I definitely would put myself in that group of people who can't stand positive thinking and can't stand the pop psychology and the self-help gurus and the uh, social media types of um, individuals who try to create this notion that You should be striving to always be happy and that there's these uh, easy steps or ways to be always happy, always motivated, have this type of perfect life free of anxiety and insecurity. And I don't think that's at all realistic. And also, I don't think that's even the goal of life or should be the goal of life. Uh, To begin with, even happiness, as all terms, we have to be Um, aware of how we are defining it or what we're talking about. And I think unfortunately, sometimes people think it's the goal of life to be happy in the sense that always feeling good. So we want a happy life and we associate happy with feeling good all the time. And so a happy life is one where you feel good all the time, which I think is impossible and not something we should strive towards. I prefer the way that happiness can also be defined, which is more of a a sense of contentment or being content with life, which doesn't mean every moment feels good. But overall, you are content with the life you have lived in are living. Um, and I also think we should strive more towards purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life and not towards the sense of do I feel good right now? I think that itself is even uh, the wrong goal. But um, the book starts off with Something that you've maybe experienced by being present in or seen online with the author Oliver Berkman at a uh, motivational seminar called Get Motivated. And it's uh, like many of these really uh, high end ones where it's a big stadium or smaller. I think the sense was uh, this one, it was a kind of a basketball stadium with maybe 10 15,000 people and they're playing music to pump you up and all the speakers are coming out and saying these really positive things and trying to motivate the crowd and everyone is getting amped up and screaming and jumping and high-fiving each other thinking that their life will never be the same and they're going to be perfectly motivated and live this great life going forward but almost always everyone is going to go back to uh, who they were before the seminar pretty quickly and it doesn't really get them very far and so uh, the antidote as the title of the book implies is looking for something different from this positive thinking, always feel good, um, seeing yourself as a magical unicorn that we think we're supposed to be striving towards and seeing what might be. uh, Is there a better way? And so in the book, Oliver Berkman goes through um, each chapter after the introduction, a different, whether you call it a school of thought or way of thinking or concept, that might be part of what he calls the negative path uh, of happiness or towards happiness. So there's the positive thinking path, which he argues, and I would agree, does not work. But it says, instead, he's saying that by talking to different philo- philosophers, psychologists, and actually he was writing a um, a, a column in a, I think it was in the Guardian, or I forgot which newspaper it was in on psychology, he saw that there were some similar themes, it wasn't just one type of way of thinking, but similar themes that made him come up with this this, uh, negative path, if you want to call it that, or that he calls it, that is his more uh, recommended path towards happiness, or what he thinks is a better way than the positive path. So I'll read a little bit of how he describes this negative path, and he says it's as he paid attention to some philosophers and self-help gurus, those that actually had something to say. And he said that the starting conclusion at which they had all arrived in different ways was this, that the effort to try to feel happy is often precisely the thing that makes us miserable and that it is our constant efforts to eliminate the negative insecurity, uncertainty, failure, or sadness. That is what causes us to feel so insecure anxious, uncertain or unhappy. They didn't see this conclusion as depressing though. Instead, they argued that it pointed to an alternative approach, a quote unquote negative path to happiness that entailed taking a radically different stance towards those things that most of us spend our lives trying hard to avoid. And I thought that was a wonderful way of describing it. And and as he said, there's even research showing that when people, try to be happier they want to be happy and strive towards that and make that their goal i want to feel good i want to be happy they tend to actually become more unhappy it it backfires and he actually uh, shares a quote from alan watts that he he calls the um uh, let's see what is it called this principle that he describes, the law of reversed effort or the backwards law, which is that when you, for example, try to stay on the surface of the water, you sink. But if you try to sink, you float. And that insecurity is the result of trying to be secure. So this type of paradoxical notion that when we try so hard to be happy and feel good, it actually backfires. And so this negative path is actually in a way doing the opposite. It doesn't mean you try to feel bad, that's not the goal, but it's that you don't resist feeling bad. And you maybe have heard me say many times that I think one of the biggest markers of mental health is being able to tolerate feeling bad, your frustration tolerance or distress tolerance. How good are you at tolerating when you don't feel good? Because life will entail not feeling good and actually a good life will entail not feeling good. A good relationship will entail being able to tolerate the challenges that will come up, the difficult conversations that you will need to have in order to make the relationship work, to make it stronger, to make it a healthy relationship. If you want your relationship to always feel good and avoid anything that might feel bad, you're actually going to create a weak relationship because you won't go into those places that are required in order to make it stronger. And similarly with Our own lives. And when we try to eliminate anxiety, as he says, or insecurity, uncertainty, failure, sadness, we tend to go more towards those things. There's no just erasing those parts of life. Uh, And I often see this clients coming to therapy having anxiety and saying, Okay, I want to get rid of this. And your anxiety can become more manageable, it can evolve, and um, definitely it can become less of a negative impact in your life, but it doesn't disappear. You're not going to make it go away. Uh, in, In all likelihood, if you're a very anxious person, you will always have some degree of anxiety. I mean, every human being has some degree of anxiety, but if you're someone who's anxious, you likely will have a good amount of it, but you can learn to manage it better. We have this hope at times that there's a way to eliminate, remove, and just make something disappear those negative things in life insecurity, uncertainty, and it's those struggles against those realities of life that actually make us more unhappy. And so as I mentioned, each chapter, he gets into a different school of thought or concept related to this negative path. And the first one is about Stoics. And um, part of what they actually do, which is exactly opposite of positive thinking, is that in the Stoic philosophy, um, they confront the worst-case scenario. So uh, we instead of thinking, well, everything's going to be good, everything's going to be amazing, or uh, as he shares, one of these motivational speakers says, you have to take impossible out of your vocabulary, so you just don't even think about it or think it's possible to fail. Quite the opposite. In the Stoic philosophy, you are going into the worst-case scenario, and you imagine that, and actually, once you do that, often it disarms what might happen, and you realize it wouldn't be so bad. Or even some of the Stoics would uh, live that way. So if they were afraid of becoming very poor, they would spend some time living in that way to see that it might not be so bad. It it still doesn't mean it's good or something desirable, but that it doesn't have to be so bad as it might feel in our mind. And even with clients who have anxiety, this is a a technique we'll often use to ask, Well, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst that can happen? And often doing this disarms a bit of the anxiety, which actually makes sense because one of the um, aspects of anxiety is the sense of a unclear thing that we are afraid of. So a worry tends to be more specific. I'm worried about my test tomorrow and how I'm going to do. Anxiety is kind of this fear of an unknown type of a thing that's in the future. But if we go to that worst-case scenario and make it concrete, it tends to disarm the anxiety a bit, and that's something that the Stoics would do. Now, there's also this notion in this chapter about the Stoics of recognizing that we often can't change things that are happening, even change our feelings completely, but we can change our attitude towards those things or how we interpret them. And sometimes this is taken to mean that, you know, I've seen this in actually self-help type of seminars that uh, as they say in this chapter that it's not things happen that are good or bad it's our reactions to those and many people have uh, quoted or made similar quotes including Shakespeare along those lines that it's not you know the things that happen that are good or bad it's our interpretations our reactions our attitudes towards them and I think there is on one hand a lot of wisdom in this type of thinking to recognize how much of what we experience is not about what happened externally, but about what happens internally within us. And so I do think there is a a lot of value there. But what I've seen is that science this is taken to an extreme that, and I remember being in a self-help type of seminar, one of these types of similar to landmark or other types of things like that. And there was this notion of someone sharing, well, let's say someone's mother died. Is that good or bad? And then Someone said, bad, and they said, no, it's how you interpret it that makes it good or bad. It doesn't have to be bad. Why does that have to be a bad thing? And again, I could see some value in recognizing that your interpretation to it um, is important and so critical. But to then make it as if everything doesn't is equal doesn't make sense to me either. That there have to be some things that we value in a universal way um, in order for things to make sense because so someone tells you their mother died to say, well, that's not good or bad. If that person's mother was right in front of you choking, would you save that person? And most people would say, well, of course you would save them, save their life because that's the right thing to do. But if you're saying them being dead is not necessarily bad or the de- their death isn't necessarily a bad thing, then how can we explain that you would want to save their life? Wouldn't you say it's equal that if they died or didn't die, which I don't think anyone would argue, but to me that's what the logical conclusion of that that, that type of thinking is, that everything is neutral in essence. And so sometimes I think people will take this to mean that, uh, you know, being stoic, kind of which comes from this, this word uh, or this philosophy, means that you're just neutral to everything, which almost means you're apathetic to life, which I don't think is actually having a healthy relationship with the world and yourself and the people around you to just not almost not care about anything and i think some people think that is the antidote that the goal of life isn't to feel good all the time but it's not to feel anything to not care and i definitely disagree with that notion and even striving towards that that the sense that i'm invulnerable because i don't get sad by anything i don't think that's healthy either it's actually accepting that there will be negative things in life. So I don't think that means that the Stoics believe that nothing mattered, but I think some people can take this principle to that uh, extreme to make it seem that nothing really matters and everything is equal. Um, So there are a few more chapters, and what I'll do is after the break get into a few more of these concepts or themes or philosophies that are part of this negative path towards happiness um, compared to the positive thinking path. So the book is The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking by Oliver Berkman. Uh, I shared the Stoic philosophy, which is one of the chapters on this negative path that he was describing. The next one he gets into is um, about Buddhism and includes uh, meditation and having a non-judgmental awareness of our feelings. And this is actually something that I think is interesting about what people think of meditation as they imagine just it makes you so calm and makes... You feel good all the time and be at peace with everything. And in its extremes, it might get to that point for some people, but before you get there and for most people for their whole lives, even if they do it, what they'll actually experience is that they're just more in touch with themselves, more aware of themselves, but not that they're always feeling good. If anything, meditation should in some ways feel bad in the sense that you will get in touch with some negative emotions, negative thoughts, or things that you wish you didn't think or feel because you are turning off the external chatter and the internal chatter as much as you can to really focus on what is going on within you. And we would expect that much of that won't be pleasant. There's a reason why we are avoiding it. So it's not about meditate so you become the most calm, peaceful person, although you likely will become more calm, doesn't mean that you'll be calm and totally at peace. You might become more calm over time, but that you are just becoming more aware, more in touch with what you're experiencing, and if you can really hold on to the sense of non-judgmental awareness, so not judge your own feelings or think you shouldn't think these things, but realize that they're just happening and having this observing self, that can be uh, much healthier than trying to feel good all the time or thinking there's some way to feel good all the time. The next chapter might be surprising for some, but it's about goals and that actually setting goals or lots of goals might not always be a good thing and we're actually getting close to the new year and often around new years I'll talk about goals and setting goals and uh, he mentioned SMART goals and I mentioned that acronym on the show several times before in several years about how we can try to set better goals to make it more likely we succeed and reach them And so anytime I read a book, especially one that's related to self-help, psychology, pop psychology, I have to be also self-aware and look at, okay, what about this book might be related to what I do and things maybe I do that aren't so good and being aware of those things or going away from those things. So when I read this part about goals, especially, I did think about that, that I've given this type of advice before. And he even acknowledges at the end of the book, the things that he's bringing up, it doesn't mean the negative path is all good and anything the opposite is, is bad. So it is good to at times set goals. But the title of the chapter is goal crazy. So uh, goal crazy when trying to control the future doesn't work. And so that we can at times become obsessed with goals and they don't always lead us to the right path or right destination. We think they will, but often they don't and often we don't uh, achieve them. Some interesting research he cites is that when people imagine themselves achieving a goal or think about achieving a goal, we would think that would motivate them to act, uh, you know, be motivated to, to get involved towards uh, going towards that goal. But he shares that in experiment after experiment, people responded to positive visualization by relaxing. They seemed subconsciously to have confused visualizing success with having already achieved it, which is interesting, but also can make sense. In that very powerful visualization that you might do, the brain will, at that moment, almost feel like you've done the work, you've done the hard work, so it's time to, to kick back and, and relax a little bit, so it can actually backfire to some degree. But he also shares the story of, I believe it was in 1996, where on a very short period, the most people died, I think it was the most on a single day, On Mount Everest and some people that were analyzing what happened came to the conclusion that people were so obsessed with this goal of achieving reaching the summit of Mount Everest that when conditions made it seem that it's probably better to turn back or that they might not be able to do it they literally chose death or the prospect of death um, over not achieving their goals or that goal and that we can become too obsessed with that and often we also see that people set certain goals as a marker to motivate them towards something good but they measure something and that itself changes the direction of where they're going so let's say for example a company sees that when it comes to sales the more calls they do the more sales they get so they encourage all their salespeople that from now on um, we want you to do a hundred calls a day that's your goal and if you reach that goal you get some bonus or something and so what will possibly happen is now people will be so fixated on the number of calls that the quality of their calls might go down or even they might be on a call that if they pursued it further might lead to a sale but they want to end that call because they want to get to that next call to meet that goal to meet that number so we can set a goal that seems like it makes make sense. If we have more calls, we're going to get more sales. But we actually start to, we might motivate or incentivize the wrong thing. So we actually go away from the direction we want it to go to. So that was an interesting chapter for me, just this thought that setting goals might not be so good, that we are in a way trying to control what happens in the future, but that that actually can backfire and work against us. The next chapter was an interesting one in a philosophical sense it's about uh, it says who's there how to get over yourself but uh, you know it's kind of a play on words by get over yourself it means to actually get over this sense of self and so you've heard this many times on the show because many different authors have discussed this concept that our sense of self that of course feels so real and feels so significant might be in some ways an illusion. Um, It could be an illusion in the sense that if I think of myself as so important, that I am this hero in this journey of my life and I'm so valuable, that can make it more likely that I'll want to make sure I survive and to pass on my genes. So from an evolutionary perspective, there could be this sense that having this exaggerated sense of self might be beneficial from an evolutionary standpoint, but it might not be beneficial in our experience of our life or how we feel during our life, or it might make us um, imagine certain things that aren't true. And so many thinkers and authors have put forward this notion that our sense of self is likely exaggerated, a way of seeing ourselves as so important, as so, um, uh, you know, extraordinary but really that's not true and also the sense that we are so separate this sense of self as being so separate from everyone else may be an exaggeration and we might actually be not recognizing how interconnected we are how interdependent we are that as much as I think I can clearly define the line of where I end and you begin or I end and the rest of the universe begins it isn't so clear. So I thought that was a uh, a great chapter looking at this concept of the sense of self itself, that we are at times exaggerating it, or that it possibly is this exaggerated sense of self, this uniqueness, this separateness that actually hurts us in the long run by making us feel alone or makes us act in certain ways and might even be uh, against our best interests in the long term. The next chapter was about, the hidden benefits of insecurity, Uh, and it could be in both ways, like the insecurity you have about yourself, let's say a certain insecurity you carry with you, but also just the sense of insecurity in the world, that we understandably want to feel safe and secure. And even he shares about airline travel and how um, often there's something that was termed the theater of safety that we, you know, we go through these, the TSA and you might take off your shoes or they check your bags. And this gives us this sense of security because we're going through all of this, but does it actually make us more safe in reality? Or this feeling we have that flying is unsafe. We hear about a a plane crash or, you know, 9-11, he shares that story. And so it makes us think, well, I should drive, which, partially is that availability bias that we've seen these tragic plane crashes and it makes us think it's more likely that planes will crash but also that when we drive we feel more in control so that makes us feel like things are better that way that i have control over things but the reality is we're much more likely to die driving rather than flying but we're just not able to make that computation and so we go towards that sense of control uh, to make us feel better about it so Uh, This is another one of those paradoxes that what actually benefits us is not trying to create perfect security because that's impossible, but actually embracing the insecurity of life and death, that we don't have control and we can't control um, every possible outcome, that we can't uh, quell our anxiety completely by having this perfect sense of safety. And can we relinquish that control and accept that we have to live with that insecurity? And so often people think, the goal should be to have perfect security, to make sure you're perfectly um, safe, but you just can't achieve that. That is not possible or to perfectly get rid of anxieties or other things that you feel. We can't do that. It's actually the embracing of that insecurity, embracing of the anxiety that will be bent more beneficial than trying to control it. The next chapter was on failure and how it actually will benefit us to embrace our failures, but most people try to deny their failures. And he even shared in just a sentence about perfectionism, but how um, hopelessness is something we commonly associate with suicidality and committing suicide, and rightfully so because it is related. But actually, uh, he shares that studies find that perfectionism may be more linked to suicide than hopelessness, something that I've talked about before, that perfectionism um, he also mentions this, we tend to almost be proud of it. We kind of share, oh, I'm a perfectionist. We kind of think it's like a, a humble brag or a way of saying a weakness is actually a strength, but it's it's actually not a good thing at all. It's something for us to be proud of. And so actually, the more we embrace our failures, the better. He also shares how related to this, we often find that entrepreneurs that become very successful, they'll talk about how uh, they persevered through failure, and he shares someone who is discussing research where they persevere through failures, these people that become very successful, and they're charismatic and good at convincing people to join them. But he says that this is a, uh, someone argued, this is a survivor bias, that we do see those people that become successful after many failures uh, and become billionaires and change the world uh, in a business standpoint. But we don't see the many people who continued to fail and maybe should have stopped and acknowledged their failure or that they weren't going to make it and change course, but persevered and also convinced people to uh, join them. And we've actually seen some of those with things like WeWork or other uh, catastrophes from a financial standpoint that we've recently witnessed of these great uh, leaders in the sense that they were charismatic and able to motivate people to join them and who persevered even when maybe they should have stopped, uh, which led to catastrophic results. But as he shares, we are less likely to learn about failures and much more likely to see the uh, ones who become successes. And this is part of that availability and that survivor bias. But actually, if we embrace our failures, we're much more likely to live a better life, not just because it means we'll become more successful, although likely we will be if we aren't afraid to fail and to take that risk, but just to live a better life, to recognize our failures and our fallibility and to share that with others makes us feel more better, more real, and also um, connected with others. There is then the last of these uh, chapters is really important one. And as I mentioned, possibly uh, a motivation that he then wrote uh, 4,000 weeks, which was about facing our inevitable mortality. And this is memento mori, which is uh, and death as a way of life that, that we often think and really we don't think about it, which is how it works, that we want to avoid thinking about death or the possibility of our own death because it can be scary, anxiety-provoking, and we want to avoid that. And instead, what we all tend to do is to live with this irrational sense that we will live forever. Now, if you ask anyone, they won't say, I think I'm going to live forever. They say, of course, everyone will die, and I will too if you press them on it. But the way we tend to function is to live as if we will never die because we don't want to think about our death, because that death anxiety can be too scary. But the Stoics and also many other thinkers and uh, philosophies and schools of thought promote thinking about death head-on. Memento Mori was actually uh, the statement of, you two will die, that you should face it every day to be mindful of your own death. And I 100% agree with this, that if we don't take... Our own death seriously we won't take our own life seriously that if we don't recognize that i too will die and i have only a limited time i don't even know how long that is we will take our life more for granted we will be less likely to do things to take risks to focus on the good things when we uh, are faced with death and our own death and sometimes this happens in a near-death experience or a feeling a threat to our life in whatever way that might be from a medical scare or medical experience to a violent scare or whatever it is, we tend to then value our life and to value things that matter more. And we hear so many stories of this. Now, we don't have to face a near-death experience to experience that. We can also remind ourselves of this reality of our death. I too will die. Let me take my life seriously. And he shares... Irvin Yalom's thoughts on how um, there is a correlation between our death anxiety and a life unlived, or the reverse of that. The better life we have lived, the less we are afraid of death. And I think something similar that we all have this innate fear of death, that we don't want to die if we're in a certain situation and we could possibly die, we get away from it, but we don't have that same fear of not living, of going through our life, not fully experiencing and not living it to its full potential and we might be better off thinking about that how would it feel not to live a full life a good life and often if we actually face our death more head on and more clearly we are likely to take our life more seriously so if we don't take our life our death seriously we're not likely to take our life seriously and so all of this he shares um quoting keats at the end of the book uh, about this negative capability this this sense of being able to tolerate not knowing or being able to tolerate uncertainty that this is actually a very important quality to have and part of uh, related to this negative path towards happiness and he shares that it's not that his whole life changed after trying to write this book and even i would say that that's part of uh, this pop psychology mindset that You read a book or you hear a speaker and your life is forever changed when really that's not what tends to happen. It can make incremental changes and positive changes to your life. You might have an eye-opening experience. Most people don't have these huge changes where they 180 degrees change and turn their life around, and we shouldn't be necessarily looking for that. But I do think it's important to recognize what we are striving for. And if we strive for positive thinking, feeling good all the time, Um, No bad days, no bad feelings, only be around positive people who are positive all the time. I think that's unhealthy and unrealistic and likely well, definitely not going to work. And then you'll feel like a failure for not being able to achieve it, all the while not realizing it was not something you could achieve or even something worth achieving. So I really did appreciate his perspective in this book and this concept of the antidote towards positive thinking which I think is really needed because there are so many messages out there. of People who want to tell you they found the secret to life, to make life easy, to make relationships easy, to make you feel good all the time. But it's all uh, fake to me and something that is not realistic and not something we should even be striving towards. So I really enjoyed this book, The Antidote Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking by Oliver Berkman. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back welcome back so today i was discussing the book the antidote by oliver berkman and i really do want to end the show focusing on this theme of um this striving for happiness that we have, or that we think we should always feel good, and using that as our compass, go towards what feels good and go away from what feels bad. And of course, in its extremes, this would be like hedonism, but even many people don't think of it in that same way, but they do have this incredibly strong positivity bias, which is at some level innate, the feelings even are there to make us go towards things that feel good, go away from things that feel bad. And they do guide us fairly well. But really to live a good life, if we follow this path, we're not going to live a good life. We're not going to, to feel um, fulfilled and happy and content with our life overall. Uh, and this notion of feeling good and feeling bad. So, of course, um, they... Feel good and they feel bad, but how we look at them, this goes back to that so extensive, the attitude about it is more important. It to me is very significant because what I often see people doing is trying to hold on to the positives of things and eliminate or reduce the negatives. So, for example, if someone says something nice to you, you might say that feels so good. It felt nice when my friend gave me that compliment or told me they were grateful for my friendship that felt nice but then they also might say if that same person says something mean oh you shouldn't care what people say but you can't have both of those things you can't hold on uh, to both of them he shared um, some thoughts from Brene Brown related to vulnerability but also the sense that you can't numb just the bad feelings that if you numb the bad feelings you also have to numb the good and that's what some people do without realizing it Uh, another analogy for that is if i numb my arm i won't be able to feel pain in my arm but i also won't be able to feel something good on my arm an embrace or a caress or a massage i won't feel those things either and so similarly i can't say i want to just feel the good things about what people say but not take anything negative about it there could be a good lesson of uh, not getting too swayed even in the positive direction if someone says something that it could feel good but not be so um, seeking of that or needing that and that's something that you can look at in a deeper way but I don't think there's any way to only take in a good from it but not take the bad and so that is actually how I think of this concept is that any type of thing we're talking about whether it's a particular relationship or how things affect us it's kind of like a pendulum where the as far as it goes high it also goes that far low and so if you have a close friend or let's say your romantic partner they can make you feel so good but they can also hurt you the deepest whereas let's say someone you don't know so well they can make maybe make you feel good but they can't really make you feel that bad either there's only a smaller range of what they can do but you can't skew it where it's all just positive and it doesn't go negative which is what people try to do to me that's not possible so if you want to feel very good in a relationship if you want to feel deep love you have to expose yourself to deep pain that's the only way it's possible if you want to really feel emotionally close and have an emotionally intimate relationship the closer you get the more pain you can experience if something happens to that relationship which can be a variety of things and eventually A relationship does end in the sense of one person or both will eventually die, but at least one of them will die or the relationship can end in other ways. So we are exposing ourselves to a particular risk. It's like climbing a mountain. I know I use that analogy of, uh, or not analogy, but example of Mount Everest in this book, but using it in a different way. Let's say you're just going hiking, not doing some kind of treacherous mountain climbing, but nonetheless, the higher you go, if you fall it's gonna hurt more. There's more pain to falling from that higher height. But also the higher you go, the more beautiful the view is that you get to enjoy. And so if you want to enjoy that beautiful view, you have to expose yourself to that risk of falling further. You can play it safe and say, well, no, I just won't go up and just see what I can see from the very flat ground here. You can do that and you won't get hurt, but you also won't get to enjoy anything that beautiful and you can't say no I just want to fall in love so deeply and expose my heart completely and get so close to someone but then when I break up no I don't want to feel bad at all and just I'm gonna you know think of have positive thinking and convince my way out of it you can try to trick yourself of that but either you didn't actually let yourself get that close or you're tricking yourself and fooling yourself in this healing that you're doing or think that you've done that it's not possible to not get hurt If you allowed yourself to get very close. And to me, that is what the good life is all about, is you're going to feel lots of very good highs, but you have to be willing to expose yourself to those lows and those deep pains as well. I often think about when people decide to become parents, they're choosing to do so, hopefully for the right reasons of wanting to be parents, to wanting to bring um, a baby and a child into this world and to love and take care of it and take on that responsibility and most people will say that becoming a parent was the most meaningful most incredible experience of their life but anytime someone becomes a parent they are also exposing themselves to what could be thought of as the most painful relational trauma and risk that we have which is to lose a child but that's a risk that people take really understanding that that is a reality That if you want that most beautiful experience you have to be willing to face that most devastating pain that can also be part of it so i think we shouldn't strive through life or shouldn't try to create a life where we minimize the bad feelings and think that that's the goal part of positive thinking is that this then said always feel good think of the good things don't even think of the bad things that to me is not a good life. The meaningful life is one where we do the things that we value, the things that matter, but also recognize that we have to expose ourselves to those risks and those pains. That's going to be part of a good life. A good life will involve lots of bad feelings and that's, that's okay. That has to be there. If you never let yourself feel bad, that probably means you're avoiding so many things. And even the chapter he had about insecurity and related to Safety. If you never want to get hurt, you have to never do anything. Even let's say from a physical standpoint and even parents do this with their kids. Well, I don't want them to get injured. So, you know, better safe than sorry, which is actually um, not a great saying for most things because yes, if you're better safe than sorry, if you take that to the extreme, don't let your kid or yourself do anything. Let's just all stay in the room and just make sure no one gets hurt. But the truth of the matter is even when we do that, we're probably avoiding thinking about our own death because you can sit in an old room, in a safe room, but eventually you will die. There's no preventing that. And there's a sense of trying to control things, but we can't control really anything and we can't even control. Definitely that death will be coming. And so it's what kind of life do we want to live? Sometimes we think we're protecting ourselves, but we're actually preventing ourselves from living. we're protecting ourselves from dying but really we prevent ourselves from living a a full life and he even mentions in the book that it doesn't mean don't protect yourself from any danger so now we just recklessly do everything with total abandonment of seeing what can be safe or how to make things better so there is always going to be some balance there some sense of things we can do that make sense to protect ourselves but this notion that i'm going to have perfect safety And that's the only thing that matters. Well, if you go for that, whether it's from a physical sense or a relational sense, professional sense, whatever it might be, what you're also going to be doing is limiting yourself and preventing yourself from living that aspect of life to the fullest. So I think it's important to recognize our bias towards the positive. Of course, we're going to want to go towards things that feel good. That is natural and expected, and that's why it will take conscious effort to go away from that or to not just indulge in that direction and so many of the self-help gurus and the pop psychology that is out there and on social media books tv shows are people who are selling us that this way of always feeling good and this positive type of way and you know he talks about how those people that have to um always pretend like they're happy because they're the, the people giving that kind of advice, so they probably have to show that they're always happy, feeling good. Cause that's what they're telling everyone else. They can promise them if they just follow them, but it's not true. It's not real. And so it's understandable, the attractiveness of someone who promises you that those things you worry about, those things that feel out of your control, I can help you feel good. I can help you feel in control and feel good all the time, but it's just not possible as i say they're always trying to sell you something either themselves or some product some courses but it's not realistic it's not real life is not easy and no one has the answer to make it easy and that's something we have to accept and no one could do the thinking for us we have to think for ourselves and no one can do the living for us that's something we have to to do and find our own way it's understandable to want to go away from those anxieties that come up that uncertainty that comes up but if we can embrace that that is part of life death is part of life and that uncertainty is part of life we can actually be more likely to live a more happy life in the sense of being content and fulfilled but if we think we should try to feel good all the time and avoid all those bad feelings we won't succeed and we'll end up more likely to be miserable and unhappy with the life that we're living all right that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Farhudeh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Al-Akwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.